Get this, we're lost in New Delhi. We're in this business district in the southern part of the city called Gurugram, but you wouldn't know that because we've come off the highway onto this dirt road. There's trash on the side, adjacent to brick wall, and there are some buildings and construction in the distance. Nobody is to be seen, and my colleague, Teddy Rosenbluth, who's sitting next to me, is still heavily jet-lagged. I've been in India for a month already, so I don't really have an excuse for us getting lost. Our driver, who goes by the name Lucky, has gotten a hold of our first source on this trip, Gaurav Garg, the owner of a pharmacy called City Chemist. Lucky's asking for directions though, so no interview just yet. We step out onto a narrow road filled with orange clay, an exposed water line next to some puddles, and a row of low-height storefronts in front of us. We walk into City Chemist and see an array of medicine bottles and boxes piled up to the ceiling. The owner, Gaurav Garg, is a middle-aged man with some stubble and a bad cold. He speaks broken English, so myself and Kritika Soni, a local journalism student who also works with the New York Times and is helping us with the reporting, try to translate his Hindi. Gaurav is showing us various generic brands of enzalutamide, a life-saving prostate cancer compound discovered by two UCLA researchers, and he's telling us who produced those brands. He just brought up the brand Extandi, the branded version of enzalutamide sold by Pfizer Incorporated and Estella's Pharma Incorporated, which UCLA is attempting to make the only version of enzalutamide on the Indian market. Gaurav then starts telling us about the prices of one generic brand called Bedenza. It costs 17,893.91 rupees, or about $256 for one month's worth of medications. He says the other generics have comparable prices. I'm selling one or two boxes every month. Oh, okay. This will take four capsules per day. Four per day. Do they take um, Extandi or the other ones? No, I'm not, never selling this product Extandi. Okay. Why? This is very costly. Mm -hmm. In the comparison of these brands, Vidanja, Glenja. How much? Hello? Gaurav gets pulled away by a phone call. His phone is ringing almost non-stop. Business is really busy. But he's given us our first insight in our week-long reporting trip in India. Extandi is almost never sold. It's just too expensive compared to generic brands, despite being the same product. Okay, he's back off his phone call, and he's telling us that sometimes, Estellas gives buy one get one offers for Extandi to incentivize purchases. We ask him how expensive Extandi is. I will tell you. Okay. Maybe Google okay. have answer for this question. <laughs> he doesn't know. So he's going to consult Google. Goes to show how little demand there is for Extandi. Uh, I think around 3 lakh rupees. Wow. 3 lakh. Per, per box. Per box. But oh. uh, I, uh, if you buy one box, you have to get two boxes. Do you think your patients could afford this? 
mostly patients buy this bedanja, gilanja. But extendi is too expensive. Yeah, that that is three lakh thirty five thousand rupees. Extendi. <laughs> so it's too expensive. Yeah, too expensive. Three lakh thirty five thousand six hundred. Google hasn't failed them yet. Extendi is three hundred thirty five thousand six hundred rupees, or about four thousand eight hundred dollars for a month's worth of medicine. We then ask them what will happen if UCLA succeeds in its legal battle where it's suing the Indian Patent Office and the High Court of New Delhi so that it can patent enzalutamide. If, um, if uh, this enzalutamide is patented, do you think you'll have to start buying Xtendi to sell here? No. No, he won't sell. Because uh, he will give that scheme only for patients, not for chemists. Ah, okay, so he won't That's sell. So he won't sell through pharmacy then? Yeah. Okay, so if, if enzalutamide is patented, then you won't be able to sell... Uh, extendi because it's uh, it has to come through doctor. Right? Yeah, complete sale go to uh, uh, company. What Gaurav is saying is that if UCLA succeeds in getting a patent for enzalutamide, it doesn't just mean the existing generic versions of the drug become illegal. It also means that pharmacies like Gaurav's won't be able to afford buying and selling Xtandi to patients because of how expensive it is. In other words, patenting enzalutamide could very well end up in making it not just inaccessible to prostate cancer patients in India, but also unavailable or absent from pharmacy shelves. I'm Keshav Thadimethi, a senior staffer for the Daily Bruins Opinion section. This week on Pillbox, how we even ended up in New Delhi in the first place, and how UCLA's overseas patent battle isn't for the money, but for the prestige. Last week, we talked about how enzalutamide is largely available in India as generics, or unbranded forms of the patented medicine created by third-party companies. This is because branded international drugs are just too expensive and many times out of the reach of average Indians. The same goes for Xtandi, the branded version of enzalutamide sold by Pfizer and Estellas, whom UCLA licensed the enzalutamide patent to. Last week, we listened in on a conversation with Rupam Bora, the head of an advertising firm whose father, Sharath Kumar Bora, has had prostate cancer for more than five years. And we learned that these generics are themselves unbearably expensive. One month of enzalutamide pills can cost nearly five months' worth of earnings in India. To make matters worse, UCLA is trying to patent enzalutamide in India, so Xtandi would be the only brand of the compound on the market. Xtandi is nearly eight times what these generic versions cost, coming in at more than 335,000 rupees, or nearly $4,800 a month, more than 30 times the average Indian's monthly salary. Last week, we learned about the pain these prices cause. This week, we're going to look at why that pain even exists in the first place, how India became prized territory for drug manufacturers, and how UCLA got caught up in all this. We've seen this trend, in particularly in cancer medicines, where medicines are priced at you know, hundreds and thousands of rupees, not a year, but a month. Meet Lena Mangani, our tour guide for today's podcast. She's a lawyer and the South Asia head for the access campaign of Medicine Sans Frontiers, otherwise known as Doctors Without Borders. Yes, that Doctors Without Borders. UCLA's patent battle has even managed to inspire the concern of this international organization. And their access programs are basically you buy one month and we'll give you a couple of months free. Or you pay for three months and then we'll give you the rest of the year free. But majority of Indian patients can't afford to pay those prices. We've seen this in the case of uh, imatinib. We've seen this in the case of dasatinib. We've seen this in the case of sorafenib. And we started to follow that. 
and then we heard about this court case that was going on on behalf of Pfizer in the Delhi High Court and it was on behalf of the I think the University of California and we alerted US civil society saying that it's strange that a university in the US would pursue patents in a country where majority of people would not be able to afford their drugs. So what's the purpose of pursuing intellectual property in a country where majority of people can't afford Pfizer's prices. But of course for Pfizer itself competition from Indian company poses a worldwide risk. So they were more concerned about keeping them global monopolies intact rather than you know being bothered about Indian patients. What Lena is saying is that UCLA's patent battle is fundamentally about helping Pfizer and Estellas maintain a worldwide monopoly on enzalutamide. It's not about making the drug more accessible or even about helping UCLA get royalties on the patent it owns. In fact, UCLA sold those royalties several years back for a whopping $1.14 billion. That still leaves us with a really big question. Why India? I mean, majority of the patents that are first filed, always India is at the top of the list. You will not forget to file your patent in India. I mean, the fact is that they're patenting everything they can in India. I mean, India is the first place where you pursue your patents after the United States and the European Union. Why? Because if you don't, then there's competition. And they, you know, I mean, India has been a thorn in the side of Big Pharma for a very long time. The fact that, you know, India independently developed the technology. For the longest time, the developed world believed that, you know, just depriving the developing world of the technology, let them struggle on their own, you know. But the fact is that, uh, you know, India went through a period where almost everybody denied them the technology. And that was the era when the first anti-malarials and the first antibiotics were coming out. They had no choice but to develop the technology themselves. Now, this is a hard-fought battle that, you know, uh, the government sort of, it, it was public policy to fund uh, organic chemists in public labs to develop the raw materials for formulations. Once the technology was developed, they can practically reverse engineer at a fraction of a cost, any drug. To put it simply, if drug companies don't patent their medicines in India, generic companies in the country will reverse engineer those compounds and provide those same medicines for cheaper to the Indian public. That's because branded medications were largely not available in India until about the end of the 20th century, despite the developing world, the US, the European Union, Canada, having access to vaccines, antibacterial drugs, and so on. So, as Lena pointed out, the Indian government made a point of incentivizing the production of generics. While the incentivization isn't prevalent these days, India lives in the legacy of its prior investment in generic medicines. Now, you give it to an Indian company, they'll cut down on the uh, uh, inefficiencies in the process. They'll come up with a much more affordable API. They'll synthesize the API, them, API themselves in a by far better process. They can practically make any API they want. They can synthesize any API they want. They can apply processes which are far more efficient than Big Pharma because they have to compete with each other. Uh, Big Pharma has a monopoly, so, you know, if you don't have such an efficient, you know, process for, for synthesizing an API, what does it matter? You just add it on to the cost. Right. Well, on the other hand here, they are much, much better at cutting down cost of manufacturing. So, uh, I mean, in that context, India is such a big thorn for Big Pharma. Just to bring you up to speed, API is short for Active Pharmaceutical Ingredient. It's effectively the unit of measuring how much of a compound is in a capsule, how much goods are in the pill, if you will. A single pill can be made up of multiple APIs. 
What Lena is saying is that Indian generic companies can sell APIs for much, much cheaper than traditional pharmaceutical companies. I want to give you a feel for how much of a nuisance that reality has been to companies like Pfizer and Estellas. As recently as 2000, the Indian government only allowed for the patents of the production process, not resulting drug, meaning Indian chemists could boldly reverse engineer medicines sold worldwide by big pharma companies. And most importantly, they could sell it for much, much cheaper. Here's an excerpt from a December 2000 New York Times story on the Indian pharmaceutical market. The author, Donald McNeil Jr., is describing the office of the then-manager of CIPLA, a generic drug manufacturing company in India. Quote, Just downstairs in the conference room is his treasure hoard, glittering with the pinks and greens of tiny pills, the sheen of gelatin capsules, the sharp glint of injection amples. In the room's glass cabinets are the 400 drugs made by his company, CIPLA Limited. They include Erecto, the company's knockoff of Viagra, Nuzac, its knockoff of Prozac, Forcan, the knockoff of the antifungal drug Diflucan, Lomac, its knockoff of the ulcer drug Prilosec, Amlopress, its knockoff of the hypertension drug Norvasc. Some of these compounds make $1 billion or more a year for the Western companies that hold the patents on them. But not here. They're sold by CIPLA at 1 20th to 1 50th of the price paid in the United States. End quote. The managing director of CIPLA was quoted saying a pivotal line, quote, Our turnover is $200 million. If we sold our products at the American originator prices, our turnover would be $4 billion. Price is at the heart of India's defensive pharmaceutical legacy. It's obvious, given this reality, that there's a public interest in keeping big pharma out of India and not having drugs like enzalutamide get patented in India. If a company has already shown its intention of obscenely pricing this medicine, then, you know, you, you are you're already warned that if you give them a monopoly, this is how they're going to behave. Now, there are two options. One, that you have a very strong government, which will immediately issue a compulsory license if a company behaves like that. But often people are caught between a rock and a hard place, which is basically the pharma companies continue exploiting the monopolies and governments often face too much of pressure from countries like the United States and unable to act on behalf of their people. A compulsory license is when, if there is a demonstrated public health need, the Indian government can force a company relinquish sole rights to a compound and thus allow greater production of a medicine at a cheaper price. It's granted rarely, almost never, giving rise to the, quote, rock and hard place. And I want to focus on that conundrum for a moment. In 2005, as part of the TRIPS Agreement, or Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights Agreement, India agreed to better allow patents from Western pharmaceutical companies. If a company wanted to patent a medicine in the country, it could, and generic companies would be withheld from producing cheaper versions of the drug until the patent expired. This seems like a good thing from an intellectual property standpoint. We hear stories today of China ripping off intellectual property from American companies, and this seems to evoke those same emotions of pirates marauding the hard work of the United States. But... Let's put that so-called marauding into perspective. Per that 2000 New York Times story, the annual world sale of drugs in 2000 amounted to about $400 billion, and some drug company executives claimed that a tenth of that, or about $40 billion, was lost thanks to countries like India selling generics. A study released in February of that same year, 2000, found that among 20 popular generics, India only cost companies to lose $69 million a year that year. With drug prices skyrocketing since, 
any reasonable person should be skeptical of how much pharmaceutical companies are really losing from not being able to sell their branded medications at jacked up prices in countries that can't afford them. Last I checked, no reasonable patient in the United States can really even afford to pay Pfizer $4,800 a month for Extandi. A whole year of that would sap half the income of an average American. So clearly there's a boulder pressing down on the throats of Indians. Allowing Big Pharma to patent life-saving drugs like enzalutamide means many Indians will be cut off from the drug, both in terms of pricing and availability. Lena's strong stance makes sense given this, but the government is clearly under pressure to patent these drugs to palliate corporate and sometimes even geopolitical interests. And that pressure takes its toll. And I know so many people who have gone without treatment. I know a colleague whose sister has cancer treatment and it took, you know, she was prescribed three patented drugs in succession. So either you sell everything you have or you go without. Um, or you wait, you know, in, in some cases, the generic companies just sort of wait for the patent to expire to get into the market. So if you're lucky enough to be on the other side of the expiry, then you can. And then if you, it's too late for you. That's the end of this, end of the story. And the system is not on your side. Neither the government nor the pharma company is willing to, to do much about it. I mean, this is like a daily reality situation. There was a time that, there, there was, you know, like every day we would receive emails from people who wanted supposed to be. Because they were dying, they were cirrhotic, and they were being told you just have to buy it for what, 10 million rupees, get it from Canada and it hadn't been for the generics and we hadn't put up that fight for generics, it wouldn't have. There's still a glimmer of hope in all this. The enzalutamide patent was rejected on the grounds that it lacked an inventive step. Since the drug was already patented in the United States and had some studies done on it, the patent office rejected UCLA's patent application. But last summer, Almost two months before we landed in India for our reporting, a judge on the High Court of New Delhi ruled that the Indian Patent Office had to reconsider UCLA's patent application all over again. This brings into question the likelihood of the enzalutamide patent being granted. Lena says it's likely. And not just because UCLA has some really good lawyers. So the law firm's actually part of the game. If, if, you, if you just watch a pharma, uh, a law firm person talking to a patent official, just by the expression, you can figure out that they are on first name basis, they know each other's children, they talk to each other, they wish each other. On the other hand, we as activists are very conscious of not to try and influence any anybody, you know. It's a completely different relationship that law firms have with these officials. They This is their bread and butter. They are at the patent office every day, pursuing multiple patents. I mean, classic example of it was at one point they could enter and leave the patent office as they wish. And then one of the patent controllers said, no, you have to sign a book to tell us who came, who went. She's not exaggerating. UCLA appealed the rejection of its patent in the High Court of New Delhi by employing Palaniappan Chidambaram, a senior lawyer and ex-minister of the Indian government. Chidambaram is well-connected and well-resourced. And he also got put in jail last summer on corruption charges after going on the run from India's Central Bureau of Investigation, or the equivalent of RFBI. Yeah, not a great look for UCLA. When Pfizer, Estellas, and UCLA all sought to patent enzalutamide in India, they knew that the Indian public couldn't afford to pay for Xandi, and that there would be opposition to such an effort. Still, 
they tried to overrule the rejection of the patent by getting the legal services of a well-connected, well-funded, and apparently morally bereft lawyer to fight their case for patenting enzalutamide. And they had to have guessed that with the growing regularity of expensive drugs around the world, and especially in India, they could slide this case past the public eye. And all of this to gain what? To make up a sliver of the profits that wouldn't otherwise be made if Indians had access to cheaper generics of enzalutamide. In a sense, this patent battle isn't even for the money. It's not like Indians will even have access to Ixtandi if UCLA's patent goes through. Instead, this patent battle is Pfizer and Estellus showing India yet another example of Big Pharma flashing some fancy credentials and impressive legal coverage and exploiting 1.4 billion people because they're too poor or uninformed to fight multi-billion dollar corporations. And UCLA is behind the scenes, using public money to put on this show. Why don't you just leave the developing world out of your licenses? What are you going to earn out of us? And my question is, these drugs, well, you didn't create this drug for us. How many Indians can buy it at Pfizer's price? So what are you achieving by licensing the product worldwide? We'll be right back. If you like what you're hearing, head over to newsstands to pick up a copy of Daily Bruin's Prime magazine, which features a whole host of other intriguing stories about the university and the community around us. You can also head over to prime.dailybruin.com to read these stories online and find the full investigative suite about UCLA's overseas patent battle. It's easy to think, given all we've learned this week, that UCLA is doing something profoundly dangerous and novel here, that it's patenting an already patented medicine in a country obviously too poor to afford it, and thus setting a precedent for other pharmaceutical companies to do the same. In fact, that's the theory postulated by Dr. Rajiv Kumar, who we met last week. He's the Associate Dean of the All India Institute of Medical Sciences in New Delhi, and a urologist who sees prostate cancer patients, among others. Looking out from Westwood, it's easy to jump to the same conclusion. UCLA is the biggest actor many of us Bruins see doing this overseas legal tango. But Lena, quite bluntly, thinks that theory is hocus-pocus. That's because UCLA is playing the same game many multinational pharmaceutical companies are already doing in India. The only difference is that unlike Pfizer or Estellas, it's an institution under the jurisdiction of the state of California. We'll talk next week about how UCLA even managed to dive headfirst into this mess. For now, though, Let's focus on the well-trodden path the university is racing down. There's hope, oddly enough, in the fact that UCLA is kowtowing to big pharma and doing what the industry has been doing for years in India. The process is largely defined, meaning there's a defined way to oppose it. It's something groups like Doctors Without Borders, Third World Network, the Lawyers Collective, and the All India Drug Action Network have systematically employed to fight against predatory patents. Anybody anywhere in the world can oppose a patent in India, which is the brilliance of the system. You can sit in Brazil and oppose patents. You can sit in South Africa and oppose patents. So I think the patent opposition system is that at the stage of examination, you go into the patent office and help the patent office examine the patent claims better by providing them with the paperwork that you have been able to find on with, based on your research. So you will go and look at prior art that already exists, the science that already exists. 
and then on the basis of that you will highlight that maybe it doesn't involve inventive step it's not a novel compound maybe this isn't a highfalutin point it's at the heart of why UCLA even set foot in India the initial enzalutamide patent filed in India was opposed by a handful of organizations and individuals the list includes Fresenius Kabi Oncology a public cancer medicine company based in Singapore BDR Pharma an Indian generic medicine company Indian Pharmaceutical Alliance which represents Indian research-based pharmaceutical companies, and two individuals, Umesh Shah and Sheila Power. Each of these opponents filed pre-grant oppositions to the enzalutamide patent, some sending in 16-page oppositions and others composing 633-page descriptive explanations of how the applications lacked the necessary qualities to be granted. Among the list, lack of novelty, lack of an inventive step, and the inability to claim the compound was an invention under the Indian Patents Act of 1970. Kamal Singh Gundli, the Deputy Controller of Patents and Designs from the Indian Patent Office, said in a statement to me that the enzalutamide patent was, quote, rejected in accordance with the provisions of the Patents Act of 1970. But we can assume these oppositions had some influence, if not defining consequences, in the patent application. We asked Lena how groups like Doctors Without Borders make use of this facet of the patent approval process. So you uh, start following the molecules at the clinical trial stage. And then it has a name like OPC something, GS something, depending on the company. Um, and then you, you try and find the structure. And then that's difficult because the pharma companies de deliberately hide the structure. Because based on the structure you do your searches and then you find the patent claims. But invariably, it's like a, a you know, sort of a ping and pong game. Sometimes we win, sometimes they win. You keep searching. It's like a puzzle you have to put together. So you, you go ahead and look for the structure. Once you have the structure, you do your searches. And you can just do it in, you can do it at the European Union level, you can do it at the US level, you can do it in uh, the Indian patent office. But once you know the basic claims they are filing, it, the claims will be the same in most jurisdictions. And then you can see what the patent offices are saying. Uh, you can also, for example, see if there's uh, a structure which is similar to that. But, you know, the kind of resources that a pharma company has to file, maintain and look for other companies' uh, patents, we don't have. So we all have to do it in-house. Variety, you know, we reach out to pharmacists, we reach out to student groups in the US who can help us with structures, like organic chemist. Someone who's worked on the drug before, you try everything you can. The difficulty, of course, is that organizations like Doctors Without Borders don't have infinite resources. So the activists have to pick their battles. Doctors Without Borders, for example, has focused on communicable diseases like viruses and HIV. Enzalutamide doesn't really make this list, though. Activists are closely watching the case, but they just don't have the money to go after it. This, of course, raises the question of what generic companies are doing while Big Pharma raid their market. Not to be a party pooper, but businesses don't really have a history of going down fighting for the greater good. Here's Sandeep Brathod, a counsel to several Indian generic companies, explaining why generic companies have started dropping the number of lawsuits they've taken against multinational pharmaceutical companies. Over the last two five years, the generic companies have reduced their opposition filings because a fair number of the bigger generic companies are themselves licensed partners to innovator companies I see. on molecule C. See, for example, if I am interested in molecule A mm -hmm. and I see a, a secondary application A1 from, say, for example, AstraZeneca, right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And if I want to oppose it, but on the other hand, my business team is already talking to AstraZeneca on molecule B, and uh, AstraZeneca gives me a license for molecule B in unrelated space. But if that molecule business license is very very important for me, then I will have to stop opposing A one application, right? Because then that will spoil business relations. In other words, generic companies can only really take on court fights as long as they aren't eating into their profit margins. That scenario leaves prostate cancer patients and their family members, like Rupam, who we met last week, fending for themselves. With more and more injunctions being granted, thereby halting medicine production, and thus allowing for fewer profits, it's hard for generic companies to keep an appetite for fighting big pharma. And don't even get activists and lawyers started on what policymakers are doing to address this hit on generic medicines. Again, this is Lena. that i think many of the decisions that are taken by uh, regulatory bodies and and patent offices are often in tune with pharmaceutical corporations and i wish policy makers understood this point because we can see this but i don't think so policy makers see this when you, you when you talk to the policy makers often they will describe this as you know these are the ones guys who do innovation they will never think of extendai coming from the university of california by funded by us taxpayers so you know for him or her the technology is here because pfizer they never go back into saying it's university of california public funded we should ask the question like do people in united states you know want to pursue this monopoly in india they paid for it and and i think a majority of people would say no i mean what's the point people are too poor i mean you just don't want to do this in this fashion so i think i don't think so officials really understand the foundation of any innovative system is is actually the public It's hard to tell a story that's filled with so much hardship and systemic predation and still be able to walk down Bruin Walk willing to hear another episode of the nonsense UCLA is doing thousands of miles across the Pacific Ocean. But there really is a shining glimmer of hope here. It's not just that UCLA is open to justified patent opposition from activists and generic companies because of how uncreative the university is being with how it's selling its soul to Pfizer and Astellas. As Sandeep, the counsel we heard briefly from before, pointed out to me, this ensued my patent battle would never have come to light had there not been a successful patent opposition. These were the two rare instances where the uh, opposition people had filed the pre-grant opposition in time and prevented the grant, right? right. But if you look at other cancer trials, diabetes trials, etc., some of them, most of them have been important secondary patents or whatever you want to call them, already granted. Mm-hmm. So. you will today have a very little chance that you will see a sophisticated or an enzalutamide type of a fight where the key patent application was still pending so in a way i wasn't entirely right when i said ucla's overseas patent battle is ordinary it's conventional and rather standard when we consider the whole host of stunts big pharma is pulling in india but it's special in that it failed on the first attempt with the initial patent application getting rejected in 2016 thanks to two individuals and three organizations who were vigilant that all forced Pfizer's and Estella's hand making UCLA come to the high court of new delhi and thus garner the attention of organizations like doctors without borders which then kickstarted the opposition in los angeles to the university's absurd lawsuit in spite of the fact that indian patent officers may be overly accepting of big pharma lumbering into their offices with chummy lawyers 
In spite of the fact that Indian courts may be sympathetic to appeals lawsuits to patent application decisions, in spite of the fact that Indian policymakers are increasingly willing to stick their heads in the sand, and in spite of the fact that Indian advocacy groups are running shorter and shorter on available resources to keep up this fight, UCLA's enzalutamide patent failed. Only a couple thousand pages of written opposition stood in between right now and the very, very likely reality that we'd instead be talking about millions of people dying from prostate cancer in India, despite there being a patented cure on the market. Except, we wouldn't be talking about that. Had the patent been accepted in 2016, we wouldn't care that millions of Indians could barely afford generic versions of enzalutamide, and that UCLA sought to make their lives even worse by patenting a medication just so Pfizer and Estellas could wear it around like a Boy Scouts badge. The university would have just been one of many multinational actors sending India down ruinous medicinal plunder. Despite being a century old, learning the lessons of history, and striving to understand the world around us, UCLA signed on to a business arrangement that ended in administrators now suing the world's largest democracy for the right to exploit more than a billion people. As an oncologist I spoke to told me, quote, You can't take any action. It's not that irregular. It's something of business as usual. As a doctor, you can't do anything. It's not something where you can act. So, you just go with the flow. Indians are going with the flow. All the while, UCLA is etching their tombstones. Pillbox is produced by me, Keshav Thadimethi. The reporting for this series was done by me, Teddy Rosenbluth, and Liz Ketchum. I also want to give a big thanks to Kritika Soni, a journalism student in New Delhi who works for the New York Times and was very gracious enough to help us with the reporting for this project. And this week, our unsung hero is Lucky, the driver who drove us a lot, kind of overcharged us a bit, but really did tolerate all of our numerous trips around New Delhi. This project wouldn't be possible without him. We'll be back next week. Catch you then.